All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. We are going to remain in Psalm 139. We're going to take a break from the book of Ruth and do Psalm 139. This is a family Sunday, and on a handful of Sundays, we have five Sundays during the month. We give our children's ministry a break and let them participate in worship and do a family Sunday because I think it's good that we worship together as families. So I think it's first graders and on up are in with us today. And uh, can we just take a moment? If you're a Sunday school teacher, would you just stand to your feet? We'd like to just say thanks, Sunday school teachers. Thank you very much. We appreciate you guys. You may know or you may not know that we just had a vacation Bible school. That's what VBS is, and it's for kindergarten through sixth grade. And they uh, participated in something called Maker Fun Factory. And it was pretty cool. And the main theme was they are made by God and they have a purpose. So that whole week of VBS, we had some, something like 130 kids come. And uh, many of them were new to the church or don't go here. Decisions were made for Christ, which is awesome. But it was a great week to focus on God as our creator and that we have a purpose for life. This, by the way, is the worldview of the Bible, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God has a purpose for your life. And we're going to look at one of the Psalms in the Bible that speaks of those realities. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as we uh, come before your holy word, we know that this is what we call special revelation. It is the mind and the heart of God revealed to man through the inspired word of God, which is profitable for every area of our lives. Often in the Bible, we hear these words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. hear." And we know that you want us to hear what you have to say, Father, but we have a lot of voices and a lot of volume coming at us in this world, and we often don't even get before our Bibles to see what your mind and heart say. Forgive us for that, Lord. But on these precious Sundays, when we get to open the word of God, We want to open up our hearts, and that's exactly what David prayed. He said, search me, O God. Try me. uh, These these are deep thoughts. Come, Come down deep, search my heart. Be a searchlight, Lord. Earlier in the Psalms, we see your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You even scrutinize my path, but I'm asking that you would come and test me. Try me, see if there's anything hurtful, anything grievous towards you or those I'm supposed to love. Lord, this is a, somebody's called this a dangerous prayer, but it's a good prayer. And it's the prayer and the heart of God's people always to say, Lord, search me, try me, test me, and make me better, make me more like you. So that's our heart this morning, Lord, as we come to the word. May it go deep into our hearts, may it be written on our hearts, and may we be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're taking a break from the book of Ruth, as I mentioned, and we're in Psalm 139. This is probably one of the more majestic psalms, but I say that every time I open to a passage of the Bible, I say, this is deep, this is one of my favorites, because it's all so rich and all so good. Now, in relativism, and that's a big word, but relativistic thought today uh, is teaching our young people, young and old, that everything is relative and truth can't really be known. In fact, 
in college campuses all over the U.S. today, relativism is the major kind of worldview being taught today. That truth is really not something you can determine or be sure of. That's the one thing that you can be sure of is that you can't be sure of anything. And what this uh, moves into, it migrates into your understanding of God and the world and you. If you can't know anything, if you can't know truth, then the argument goes this way, then you can't know God. Or you can't really know what God is essentially. So if you're sincere about what you believe, then whatever you believe is fine. That's what's being taught in academia. So if you're going to send your kids to one of these institutions, I'd say you might want to pray about saving your money. Because this is what's happening in a lot of areas. Now, if they're prepared to deal with it, that's one thing. But we have what's called epistemology out there, how we know what we know. And people are saying, we can't know anything. Of course, the one thing that they know is that they won't put up with the God of the Bible. Or Christians who represent the God of the Bible. That's the one thing that they, they do know. And so this is the way that our world has moved. But the Bible actually argues that we can know God and we can know his heart and mind in a couple of different ways. One is through creation. The Bible tells us that just by what has been made, man, men and women are inexcusable because God's divine attributes are clearly seen by what has been made. So there is what's called general revelation. Anyone can look up, this, up at the stars, see a soaring bird in flight, look at the oceans, look at the majestic colors of flowers, look under the ocean, examine the heavens which declare the glory of God, the skies which proclaim the work of his hands, and they speak. I'll put quotes around that because they speak in one sense. They show us that there is a designer. If you have a building, you have a builder. If you have a painting, you have a painter. If you have a creation, you have a creator. Amen. It's not that difficult to figure out. But that same section in Romans 1 that says that men and women are inexcusable just by what has been made tells us something else about mankind. This is how we are. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means some people take a truth suppressant every morning. They gurgle it down with a little bit of water. But here's a great illustration of how you suppress the truth. The truth is always before mankind, just by general revelation, always springing up. And it comes to us through creation, but also in our conscience. Romans 2.15 says, Our conscience bears witness with the law of God written on our hearts. So you have creation and you have conscience. And what we have to do is push it down, suppress it. If you've ever been in a pool before and you had maybe a big beach ball, if you ever tried to push the beach ball down under the water, it's a losing battle. You can hold on to that beach ball and try to push it down, but eventually, bloop, you'll come back up and you'll look pretty silly. That ball is going to come to the surface and you have to keep pushing it down and pushing it down. This is how it is with truth that comes to us through creation and our conscience the only way we can ignore it is by suppressing it. We have to push it down. Or literally the Greek means to push it away. And there are people every day pushing truth away. Turning up the volume. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to deal with that. So I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'll keep my eyes over here instead of looking deep within or looking up. 
And so we have creation, conscience, but we have something else. I'm giving you some C's now if you're a note taker. Creation, conscience. We also have what's called the canon of Scripture if you're a note taker. Three C's, creation, conscience, and the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture is simply the 66 books of the Bible. By the way, the Bible's not one book. It's 66 books written by 40-plus authors over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents. Many of the Bible writers didn't even know each other. They didn't live at the same time. But there's one central message of the Bible. God and his redemption, uh, plan of redemption for mankind. That's the message of the Bible. The Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God, what, what did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. The Bible doesn't try to give you an argument for God's existence. He just says, it just says God was. He was there in the beginning. Special revelation is the Bible. God has not left himself without a witness. We can know God. He is there by creation, conscience, the canon of Scripture. And then if you want a fourth C, by Christ. Christ, who is God in human form, entered into time and space and lived in the very history in which we find ourselves embedded. We know that he lived around 80 BC, 4 BC to about AD 30, somewhere in there. So we can mark history with leaders like Augustus Caesar and Pontius Pilate. By the way, they found artifacts in archaeology today with those names on them, people groups and history and artifacts. These are all things that tell us about the God of the Bible. He has not been silent. The book of Hebrews says, In times past he spoke in many ways, in many fashions, through the prophets and so forth. But in these last days... He has spoken to us through his Son. If you write down Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, it says that the Son is the exact radiance or the exact representation of the Father's glory. So you have creation, conscience, the canon of Scripture, and Christ. Write those four things down because when you talk to people, you need this, these arguments. Somebody might say, well, how do you know who God is? How do you know that the God of the Bible is God? Creation, conscience, the canon of Scripture in Christ. And I would add a fifth element there. This will be fifth on my list, my changed life. I've experienced God. I know God. Some of you might say, what do you mean you know God? <laughs> I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit lives in me. Can I get a witness? I know God. I have sensed his voice. I know his direction. I've come to know him through his word and experientially as well. This psalm will provide theological insights to God. In fact, some of you have heard about God's omni-attributes. When it says that God is omniscient, what it's using is two Latin words. Omni means all. Science means knowledge. God is all-knowing. Whenever you, see, you hear of God's omni-attributes, what that means is that he has all of it, and he's had it for all time. God is all-knowing. He's omnipotent. We like to say omnipotent. He's all, what? Powerful. And he is, so he's omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful. And he's also omnipresent, right? All-present. There's nowhere that we can go that we can escape the view and the investigation of God. So this wonderful psalm will give you all of the omni-attributes I just mentioned of the Lord. David opens, and this is a psalm of David. And just remember that when you read the psalms, they were songs 
that were sung. So they, they had that structure. We don't know the music that they were set to uh, in every case, but we do know they were psalms. And so David opens the psalm with these words. He says, O Lord, thou hast searched me. The, uh, the idea here of search means to examine carefully, intimately, to investigate. It can have the idea of being sifted or winnowed. O Lord, you have searched me. And what? You know me. This is going to be a very personal psalm. Sometimes when we live in this world and we, we see that there's, you know, six, seven billion people on the planet, we kind of go, does God really know me? I mean, does God know when I pray? Does God know where I am on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday night? I know where you are on Wednesday nights, by the way, if you're here or not. <laughs> but, but we ask those, those kinds of questions. And David says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows what you're like. He knows everything about you. That could either, either be thrilling or a bit disconcerting. <laughs> Amen? Yes. How well does he truly know me? Oh, you're going to see. <laughs> and here it is, folks. Here's a little preview of what's coming. He even knows what you think. Oh, my goodness. And still loves you. Oh, praise the Lord. Anyway. In Psalm 23, the famous psalm, David says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The uh, shepherd had a rod and a staff. The staff was to bring the sheep close in. So you've, you've seen the, that shepherd's staff with a little crook on the end, like a candy cane. So you could get wayward sheep and bring them in. But think of the idea of bringing them close. The rod, one of the purposes of the rod was to get a wayward sheep that was too far for the staff to get their attention. So the sheep herder would throw the rod at a rock and they were so accurate that if a sheep was over there going because they're kind of dumb. Anyway, and the rod hit the rock, it would get them to come back to the flock. My grandmother used to do this with the TV guide <laughs> or her shoe. In fact, she could make it do whatever she wanted it to do. It was kind of like a boomerang. It would hit me in the back of the head in Italian fashion, speak Italian words to me. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Schmack! And then come right back to grandma and she just blow on it and put it back in her holster. That's what the shepherd can do. He can smack you on the back of the head sometimes. But they say that the rod was also for the parting of the sheep's fur to look a little deeper to investigate if there were any problems there, any hidden insects, anything bugging them under the surface. To pass under the rod means to pass under the investigation of the shepherd. Remember, God is our shepherd. A shepherd cares about the sheep. He loves the sheep. That's why he parts the fur. So we should not run from his discerning eye, even though sometimes we want to. It should comfort us that he looks, us, looks at us that way. In 1 Chronicles 28, David is charging Solomon, and he says, As for you, verses 9 and 10, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with the whole heart, a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. That's 1 Chronicles 28, 9, and 10. 
Notice, secondly, what does God know about us? Well, he knows, verse 2, when we sit down and when we rise up. These are pretty basic things, but that's how far-reaching God's knowledge is. He knows when, in, when you're in your lazy boy, being a lazy boy, and that's okay. Everybody's got to sit and rest at times. He knows when you sit down, and he knows when you rise up. Some of you are early risers. Some of you don't wake up until noon. Some of you, we wonder if you're ever going to get up. <laughs> but that's a different story. He knows when you sit down. He knows when you rise up. But it's more deep than that. He says, thou dost understand my thought from afar. You know, when I rise for work, getting ready, trying to get everything done. You know, when I sit down and finally have a chance to rest and kick back. And in fact, you know my thoughts from afar. God is omniscient. Remember I told you about his omni-attributes? He knows our thoughts. Jesus knew people's thoughts in the New Testament. How do you do that unless you are God? He knew their thoughts. He knew what was in man. Luke eleven seventeen 17 says Jesus knew their thoughts. John 2, 24 and 25 said he, know, he knew what was in all men. He knows what we're thinking. He knows when we're putting on a show, when we're sincere. Thou does, verse 3, scrutinize or search out my path. He knows which way we're walking each day. My lying down when we go to bed and what's on our mind and heart. You are, notice, intimately acquainted with how many? With all my ways. Bible students, I would encourage you to see how many times David says my or I. You know, my ways. This is all personal. You know, my path, you know, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. This is very personal. Turn to the book of Genesis for a second. That's the first book of the Bible. Genesis 16. There's a story where um, Hagar and Sarai are not getting along. And uh, it gets so tense that Hagar has to bail from the tent. Look at Genesis 16. Look at verse uh, six. 16, 16.6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power to do to her whatever is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, Genesis 16.7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her. He found Hagar. You would think that you know, maybe Hagar would be low on God's priorities, but she wasn't. He found her. He was looking, and he found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. By the spring on the way to shore. And he said to Hagar, Sarah's maid, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord, most scholars believe that's Jesus in the Old Testament before Bethlehem, said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord, verse 10, said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. You know, there's a lot of Hagars in this world. You know, maybe not part of that, that line to the Messiah. And Hagar may be thinking, does anybody really care about me? I'm just a maidservant from Egypt. I'm just supposed to do what everybody tells me to do. And it got tough and she bailed out. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus in the Old Testament, knew exactly where she was. Here's an illustration how God scrutinizes our path. He knows. He knows when you're running away from something. He knows when maybe you feel like you don't count or don't matter. And then this place, this location, verse 13, same chapter, 
Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, Have I seen, uh, she said, Have I seen remained alive hereafter seeing him? And she called the place, notice, Bier Lahoy Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bared. You are a God who sees me. The ESV in verse 13 says, You are a God who looks after me. You are a God who sees me. Sometimes we wonder that, right? God, do you see what I'm going through? Do you know where I am physically, emotionally, spiritually, geographically? And even Hagar, an Egyptian maidservant outside of Israel, said, you are a God who sees me. Back to uh, the psalm, if you would. You are the living one who sees me. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jews didn't even go that way. They would pass around it, go the long way. Jesus had to pass by there. And he met a woman where? At a well. And she told the townspeople after that interaction, come see a man who sees me. Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. And she bore witness to Jesus. Who was she? Samaritan woman at a well? who had had five husbands, was living with another man, an outcast, not considered to be someone doing things religiously right, and Jesus had to see her? Why? Because Jesus loves people. Just like you and like me in our times when we had nothing to offer him. He says in verse 4, Psalm 139, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. God knows even when things are forming in the back of your head. How many of you wish that he would send you one of those bells to warn you that something stupid's about to come out of your mouth? If a bell would just ring or one of those hockey, remember when, you know, when a hockey goalie gets beat and it goes, what an embarrassing position to play. Everybody knows when you've blown it, you just got to turn around when that thing goes, you blew it. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's why they're always getting a drink after a goal or trying to ignore that siren. (laughs) The Bible says that there's power in the tongue. This little thing, right? So much power in it. And before I even speak a word, God knows what I'm about to say. Have you ever had a word forming in your mind and sensed there was another presence saying, don't say that. And you're like, I'm saying it anyway. Yeah. And then that whole thing that just came out of you would be best designated as a mess, right? Where you hurt somebody close to you and, and, and you can sometimes reflect on those moments and say, man, there was something in me that said, don't do it, don't say that. And I just plowed through because God's omni-attributes doesn't mean you don't still have free will. Man still has a level of what we'd call autonomy or free will. David says, you've, you've enclosed me, verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. I think this is positive and not negative. It reminds me of the angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel when the Egyptian army was coming and then he went behind and he separated the two camps. You encamp around me. You enclose me behind and before. 
Jacob went through something like this when he, uh, after 20 years, he left Uncle Laban and uh, he was traveling and he heard that Esau, his angry brother, after 20 years of resentment, was coming with a small militia, 400 men. Jacob moved his family across the stream and he was there camped alone, but he wasn't alone. God was there. And remember what happened? This is Genesis 32. You all know the story. Jacob, there was a man, he, it was late at night, he was kicking back in his tent or outside and some, something just touched him. Maybe he thought it was Esau or one of Esau's men. Can you imagine you ever had someone mess with you at night? You're sleeping, mouth open, oh, flies buzzing around your head, <laughs> looking to go into the opening, and somebody just goes, hey! <laughs> Those are some of the funniest videos, if you can ever take a video. Some people, when you wake them up, are angry. Make sure they don't have any weapons around them because they're like, ah! Right? Well, he woke up and this man, who we later learn is God or the angel of the Lord, wrestled with Jacob, do you remember? Until the daybreak. You thought MMA was a recent uh, phenomenon? No, 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 no. It goes all the way back to Genesis 32. And here's what I think's going on. Jacob, you're a wrestler. You wrestled with your brother in the, in the womb. You're trying to pull him back, Right? You've been, you wrestled with Esau when you got older. You stole the birthright and the blessing. You've wrestled with Uncle Laban 20 years. You like to wrestle? Okay. Ding, ding. Let's go. Can you imagine if God said to you, hey, let's wrestle? What would you say? <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> is there somebody I can tap to bring in to the ring? Now, those of you who wrestled in high school, it's three two-minute rounds, right? And those guys are in good shape. Imagine wrestling with God all night long. God, God basically says, you like to wrestle? Okay, Jacob. And then at some point in the wrestling match, and I don't know what went on, but the Hebrew language is grappling and dust flying and maybe torn clothes. God just went zap to the thigh of Jacob. <laughs> and Jacob... Never walk the same way again. Anybody? Anybody tracking with this one? Ooh. Now, do you know in the Old Testament, when they wanted to make a promise, they, they would make an oath promise, and you guys have seen this in the Bible, and when they said, I want you to swear to me, they would grab on the, in, in the inner thigh, and it kind of had this idea of, on future generations, you're going to make this promise, and they would squeeze the inner thigh. Well, that night when Jacob was across the stream and he was wondering, if, is Esau going to kill me? Is the promise going to come to fruition? Is it going to happen? After the wrestling match, God just went, hmm. <laughs> In other words, he was saying to him, I'm going to keep my promises. I told you that your, your generation would outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. It's going to happen, Jacob. And just so you know, you're never going to walk the same again. Stop wrestling with me. And that night, Jacob got a new name. Remember what he's named? Israel. Do you know James Montgomery Boyce has made an argument that Israel, best defined, probably doesn't mean governed by God but probably means God governs or God prevails. That night, it does say Jacob prevailed, but Jacob was just holding on. Hosea says he was just holding on and begging, please bless me. I don't want to let go until you bless me. 
right? And he got zapped in the leg. And Jacob won by losing because when God prevails in your life, you actually win. When you say, I surrender, I give up, and hopefully you don't need to get zapped in the leg to say it, but some of you, you've been limping, right? I've been limping. <laughs> and God touches you, and you're like, wow, that, that's a good reminder. I don't think I want to wrestle with him anymore. See, God was there. God prevails, but sometimes he's got to touch us. And we, we say in worship often, oh Lord, just touch me. I want to feel your presence. Okay. Zap. Wow. <laughs> but sometimes that's what gets our attention. Would you agree? Sometimes we're going through a sickness or a difficulty or some stress and we look to God like we've never looked before. God prevails. See, he knows what we need. And that's why we invite him to investigate and search us. That's why David says in verse 6, such knowledge of God's concern for my life is too wonderful for me. It's too high. It's lofty, NIV. I cannot attain it. A good way to say this in modern language is it's mind-boggling that God cares about me in this way. And then he says, as we transition to verse 7, where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? You know, places that we go, we shouldn't go anywhere that we couldn't take God with us, but even if we go somewhere that we shouldn't be, God's still there anyway. There's nowhere we can go that he's not there. Where could you go to escape the one who made every corner of the universe? Nowhere. Where could you go? Jonah tried to go, right? And God knew where he was too and made a custom-made fish for Jonah. Did you guys know God speaks fish? He does. He knows a lot of languages, all of them. He can even speak to a fish who swallowed up Jonah. And he can even hear prayers from the belly of a fish. Oh, that's pretty cool, isn't it? You think sometimes, well, if I pray here, do I have to pray in a church building for God to hear me? No. Pastors were arguing about the best posture for prayer. Is it on your knees, on your face, standing with your hands up? And one man said, no, the best posture for prayer one time was when I was dangling off a telephone pole <laughs> at work. That's the best posture for prayer. Help! I need help now. Where could you go? What if you went up to the heavens? He says you're there. What if you made your bed in Sheol, which could speak of Hades, the underworld of the dead, could speak of the grave? Behold, you're there. What if I took the wings of the dawn, verse 9, or if I went to the remotest part of the sea? You're there. A second omni attribute of God you're seeing now is his omni, omnipresence. He's everywhere. Some people say, are you sure that God has these omni attributes? Oh, he does. There's nowhere you could go where he's not there. Verse 10, even there in these places mentioned in verses 8 and 9, thy hand will lead me, thy right hand will lay hold of me. But what if I, what if I had a 
kind of a negative, pessimistic attitude. What if I said something like this? What if I say, verse 11, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. What if, what if it's so dark somewhere that I can't even see my hand in front of my face? Is God there? What if I'm a spelunker? Anybody know what spelunking is? It's those people. Those, those people are pretty brave. I don't like, I sleep with the nightlight on. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Some of you say, Pastor Michael, what? Well, my wife likes the nightlight, okay? It's really not me. We have a dog. She's gotten worse over the years. Any little noise she hears, she starts with the low half bark. Anybody got a dog like that? And then, you know, here it comes, right? So she's become the nightlight. But what if, what if I said, man, I'm in the deepest, darkest cave? Well, the psalmist says even... Darkness and light are the same to God. It's not like he needs special night vision goggles to see where you are. He knows where you are always. Some of you feel like you're in a dark place right now. You feel like, man, you look around and things are dark. God knows. And his light can even penetrate that. Verse 13 says, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou did weave me in my mother's womb. Is there anywhere that God can't be? You know, he's so everywhere. He's even in the womb. In fact, I had a chance to pray at the Corona Life Services banquet. And one of the things that God put on my heart is to say that the womb is a sacred place where God is. God's even in the womb. And God does some weaving. God formed the first man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. God formed man. Take a look at Job. It's the book before the Psalms. The book of Job. A lot of insightful stuff in the book of Job. And Job is sometimes, quite often actually, complaining. But here's what we see. This is Job 10. Look at verse 8. Job is speaking and he says these words. He says, your hands, I'm reading from the NIV, Job 10, verse 8. Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember, Job 10, 9, that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again, Job 10, 10? Did you not pour, pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. But this is what you concealed in your heart. And I know that this was in your mind. We are made by God. God is involved in the weaving together of human beings. Go back to Psalm 139. In fact, I was reading something from a commentary this week that said that the idea of the weaving ties to the high priestly robes that they're weaved together with this incredible... Uh, knitting and so forth, and God knits us together. We are, look at verse 14, I will give thanks to God, Psalm 139, 14, for I am what? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. You know, in the ancient days, they didn't really have the, the picture we have into the womb now and how babies are formed. Think about just the bones of a baby. 
Think about the eyes. Think about the nervous system and the circulatory system. Think about the wonder of who you are. Your hands. Do you know that your fingerprint is unique just to you? You ever just pondered that for a second? I said, man, my fingerprint is unique only to me, to Michael Lance. God is a God of detail. He's a God of wonder. Scientific research should forever put to rest this whole idea of evolution because evolution says that nobody made you, that you're an accident, that there's no mind, no intelligence behind creation whatsoever. Can all God's people say, that's not intelligent, folks. That's silly. And so Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, just as you do, you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. We were skillfully wrought. We are a wonder of creation. Your eyes, 16, has seen my, have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 31.15 says, My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. God has a plan for your life. Are you fighting him? Are you living your life for the glory of the one who made you? That's how you're going to find fulfillment and contentment. Nowhere else. If you fight him, if you try to run from him, you're not going to find your true purpose in life. And then David says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, verse 18, they would outnumber what? The sand. Have you ever just taken some sand in a general area, put it into a cup and just poured it out and looked at the individual grains of sand? The thoughts that God has toward you are vast. Look at what your Bible says. They are, if I would count them, they would outnumber the sand. You ever gone to bed just pondering the thoughts of God, the word of God? I'm talking about good meditation. Eastern meditation is to go om, om, om. Sit with your legs crossed, which I can't do anyway. <laughs> And in some areas, ponder your belly button. I don't recommend that because if you do too much of that, you're just going to find lint in your belly button anyway. It's not a good thing to ponder. Biblical meditation is to meditate on God and his word. And if you went to bed pondering the thoughts of God and woke up, you would keep pondering and you'd ponder them for the rest of your life. And for that matter, 10,000 times 10,000 lives. Because God is so deep. And so incredible. When I, he said, if I count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with thee. And he is with us. He will never leave us, nor will he what? Ever forsake us. Lo, I am with you always, Matthew 28, till the end of the age. He says, I prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Where you are is where I want to be. Amen. How great are your works, your thoughts are very deep, Psalm 92, verse 5. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who told him the ocean can only go this far? Who told him how to put the stars up there? Who told him how to make this planet spin? Who told him about the sun and the moon and the stars? Who told him to design six million forms of plants and animals with diversity and pollination and reproduction and self-healing? Who told him that? Who counseled him? Did God go to school? Nope. God is all knowing. He knows everything. Any interaction we have with God by nature of his person is going to be deep. I'm not saying it can't be simple because some of the more simple things are the more profound, profound things in life. But he is deep. And then David breaks into this. He said, Oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked. Verse 19. Oh, God, depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. You know, when you start thinking about the majesty of God and then you think about what man does. Think about the contrast. The, the killing of the innocent, bloodshed. For they speak, they blaspheme your name. They speak against thee wickedly. Verse 20, thine enemies take thy name in vain. How many times a day do people use the name of God in vain? Think about it. The name of Jesus, taking it down to the level of a word to, to express disgust. The God that breathed life into you. The, the, the Bible says that God holds your life breath in his hand. And day after day, it's a wonder that God doesn't just destroy everything or just have barbecues all over the place. As soon as somebody took his name in vain, zap! If you were God, would you do it? <laughs> Zoop, bap, boom. Try that again, pipsqueak. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> but God is so patient. David says something hard here. He says, do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred, and they've become my enemies. Now, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. But I think David, as he muses on God's glory, then thinks about people who oppose God and kill the innocent and take his name in vain, and he's like, man, that bugs me. We've all been there before. And maybe that's why David says what he says now. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. How many of you have ever prayed that prayer? You don't have to necessarily raise your hand, but I think a book came out or it was a video series called Dangerous Prayers. And this is a prayer that you could say in one sense is dangerous because you're inviting God to search you and know you, but I'm not sure he needs your invitation anyway. <laughs> Maybe in one sense he does because God wants you to decide to follow him. And I would encourage you this week, if you're willing to say something like this, Lord, search me. I invite you. Know my heart. Try me and know what makes me anxious. He already does, right? Know my anxieties. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, as we wind down in this message, I, I just want to tell you that David is saying, Lord, if there's anything that needs to be fixed, 
Notice, mark in your Bible, the hurtful way and the everlasting way. Life really comes down to this. It's very simple, but very profound. Are you going to do it your way or God's way? Your marriage comes down to this. Are you going to do it your way or God's way? Your years on this planet come down to this. You're going to do it your way or God's way. What are you going to choose to do? Do you know your way here is compared to the hurtful way and God's way is the everlasting way? Look at verse 24. Just draw a line in your Bible. Highlight it. Hurtful way, everlasting way. Which way do you want to go? There's one way that's going to hurt you and others around you. Ultimately, because anytime we make life about us, we hurt God because God can be uh, wounded or vexed. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we do it our way, we hurt others around us because we make decisions that are not God's will for our lives, our families, our work, our ministry, our personal lives. And we do it our way and we end up hurting ourselves and others. I know if I invited many of you up here right now, you could tell me periods of your life when you did it your way and then when you decided to do it God's way. Which would you recommend? Is God's way the easy way though? Oh no. You've probably heard it, but Chuck Smith used to say, any dead fish can float downstream. All you have to do is be dead and you just flop with the flow. But if you want to do things God's way, sometimes you're going to be swimming against the flow. Your language is going to be different from everybody else around you on the playground or at school. Do you need to curse? Well, that's what the cool people do. Really? Well, what about what God thinks of your language? Do you need to be like your buddies who can excuse just about anything immoral and somehow use a joke or a quip to justify it? Is it your way or God's way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, how many people are entering into eternity right now doing it their way and are going to face a hard reality that their way was the hurtful way? Jesus' way is the everlasting way. I am the way. There is no other name, Acts 4.12, under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. That is not negotiable. That is God's way. Some people say, that's a narrow thing. Why would God only, at least he made a way. Amen. How about we look at it from a positive? At least he's made a way. If he let his son die for you, do you not think that he loves you and cares for you? He's made the way. In fact, we would argue it's the only way because he had to shed his blood and be perfect and fulfill the law and die as a sacrificial atonement. God's made a way. How about we take his way? That's what God says. Take my way and you will find a blessing and contentment and peace. It won't always be easy, but it will be right. Father, we want to be a man or a woman after your own heart. That's what David was. And I think the reason that he was, at least in part in this psalm, was that he was honest 
And he invited you to search him. A man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart says, search my heart. And if there's anything hurtful, Lord, let me turn away from that and lead me in the everlasting way. Jesus, you are the way. You're the way of salvation, but you're also the way of overcoming temptation. You're also the way of dealing with life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, thank you that you're an ever-present help in time of need. And when we get into the book of Hebrews, we see that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And yet we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens and nothing's hidden from him. And we're invited to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. Thank you, Lord, that you are the great intercessor of the church, that you love your people and that you've made a way. You must have loved us because you want us to be with you for all eternity. And Lord, I think I would speak on behalf of this congregation saying, forgive us for the times that we've done it our way. We've been selfish and self-centered and petty. Lord, heal us of our backslidings. Change our focus and make us more like you. And when we think of your omni-attributes, we think of the fact that you know our thoughts, you know where we are, and you're so powerful you made us. You formed us. You gave us the privilege of being human. You purchased us with your blood, Jesus. Uh, what can we say? Only that if God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, we just want to say we love you. And I want to invite you with your head and heart bowed right now. If you've not met this one who is the way, the way to life, then you must have a moment when you decide to follow him when you repent of your sin and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And, and you can do that by prayer and you can do that right now. If he's been knocking on the door of your heart, trying to get your attention, maybe you've been a prodigal, maybe you've run like Jonah, maybe you've been far away and it's not gone well. Something like this. And I would invite you, this is the most important moment for many who are listening to my voice. So be praying, Christians, and Something like this. If you don't know Jesus, something like this. Lord Jesus, pray it out loud if it's you, come into my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Please forgive me of all the wrongs I've done. Thank you that you paid that price for them, Lord. I trust in you for my salvation. And I want to follow you as my Lord. Father, for those who are making first-time commitments or recommitments or those who simply just want to go deeper like David, bless them, Lord. Encourage them that, they, that you're in their corner, that you love them, that you know what they've been through even this last 24 hours. And you're here to minister hope and life and encouragement. So may your spirit be working all over this room to do the work that only you can do. And may we yield to it in Jesus' name. Amen.